Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. Jesus Christ must not allow favoritism. Suppose there should come into your assembly a person wearing gold rings and fine clothes, and at the same time, a poor person dressed in shabby clothes. Suppose further you were to take notice of the well-dressed one and say, sit right there in the seat of honor, and say to the poor one, you can stand or sit over there by my footrest. Haven't you in such a case discriminated in your hearts? Haven't you set yourselves up like judges who hand down corrupt decisions? Listen, dear sisters and brothers, didn't God choose those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom promised to those who love God? Yet you've treated poor people shamefully. Aren't rich people exploiting you? Aren't they the ones who haul you into the courts and who blaspheme that noble name by which you've been called? You're acting rightly, however, if you fulfill the vulnerable law of the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin, and that same law convicts you as transgressors. Those who keep the whole law except for one small point are still guilty of breaking it. The one who said, no adultery, also said, no killing. So even if you don't commit adultery, if you do commit murder, you still break the law. Talk and behave as people who will be judged by the law of freedom, because judgment without mercy will be the lot of those who are not merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. My sisters and brothers, what good is it to, be, to profess faith without practicing it? Such faith has no power to save. If any are in need of clothes and have no food to live on, and one of you says to them, goodbye and good luck, stay warm and well fed, without giving them the bare necessities of life, then what good is this? So is it with faith? If good deeds don't go with it, faith is dead. Some of you will say that you have faith, while I have deeds. Fine, I'll prove to you that I have faith by showing you my good deeds. Now you prove to me that you have faith without any good deeds to show. You believe in the one God. Fine, but even the demons have the same belief, and they tremble with fear. Don't you realize, you foolish people, that faith without good deeds without good deeds is useless? Wasn't our ancestor Abraham justified by his actions when he offered his child Isaac on the altar? There you see proof that faith and deeds were working together, and that faith was made complete by the deeds. You also see that the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as justice. This is why he is called the friend of God. So you see him, so you see people are justified by their works and not by faith alone. And in the same hey, in the same way, wasn't even Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and showed them a different way to leave? Be assured then that faith without works is as dead as a body without a spirit. All right. Thanks, Zach. Um, I don't know if he was quite sure what he was volunteering for when I said, would you read the scripture today? And he had a whole chapter to read, so you did a good job. Um, can we pray? Holy Spirit, you are welcome here, here in this place, here in our hearts. Open our eyes to show us what you have for us today in your word. Calm our minds so that we can focus on what you have for us 
and what you would like to say to us. Amen. So last week, Dan brought our message on the first chapter of James and a little background on the, the history of James. If you haven't heard it, I would strongly recommend you go back and listen to it. It's on our podcast. It's on the website. It gives a really great foundation of what we're getting into in the book of James. So today we're capturing uh, the second chapter. Dan, I have to respectfully disagree that you said that James is not a feel-good book. Because I, I read that chapter, and I feel all warm and fuzzy inside. So what I hope is that when we leave here today, that each of you has grasped onto something, some hope, some joy, some new way of seeing this chapter of James that does fill you with good feelings. So when I was a teenager... Math was my favorite subject in school. I really love reading. If you ever come over to my house, I have bookshelves and bookshelves. And I went to a Bible study yesterday, and they said, why don't you bring a few books to share? And I brought an entire tote of books to share. And I love every single one of them. They're like my favorite little children. But I didn't like English literature when I was a teenager. I really loved math. Math was my jam. Because it was either right or wrong, black or white. I was homeschooled and my mom did not like math at all, so she would just give me the answer book. I'm sure she never touched the answer book ever. And I would go through, I would do my work, I wouldn't cheat, because I was a good little Christian girl. And I would do all my math work, and then I would open the answer book and I could go through and check it. And it was easy to see. It was right, it was right. Oh, that one's wrong, why is it wrong? And I could go through, oh, that's where I went wrong, I could do it again and I could be right. I don't like English literature, and I especially didn't like it as a teenager because there was no right or wrong answer. It was all squishy and couldn't be measured in black and white. Like, what are the major themes of this book? Who, what is the significance of this character? What importance does the color red play in the story? I don't know. There was so much room for argument so much subjective interpretation, I couldn't get it right or wrong, and that made me very uncomfortable. When I was a teenager, James was one of my favorite books of the Bible. I loved such a set, neat little set of rules. I could get it right or wrong. It was black or white. All these things that I could do to do a good job at being a Christian. I could ask God for wisdom persevere under trial. I could be slow to speak and slow to anger. I could welcome everyone at church. So I could easily measure where I met the, met the mark and where I fell short. So I would have a checklist of my Christian success. But as I've grown up, my understanding of my Christian walk has changed a little bit. And I, I'm not satisfied by that check the box approach to Christianity that I had when I was a teenager. You know, the do these things, follow those rules, and then I get to go to heaven when I die. And so my understanding of the Christian walk now more focuses on relationship. My relationship with God, and my relationship with myself even, and my relationship with other people. Did you catch where James echoed the words of Jesus who in turn was echoing uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. In James 2.8, he wrote, You are acting rightly, however, if you fulfill the venerable law of the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. 
And when we look at where, where uh, Jesus said this, it's in Mark 12, 28 to 31. And one of the scribes asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Love God and love neighbor. That to me feels more expansive than a list of ideas to agree with. And it's more dynamic than just adhering to a list of rules by sheer willpower alone. When I think about what was most important to Jesus, why was he here? What did he come here on earth to do and to share with us? I look back at his very first recorded sermon in the book of Mark chapter one, verse 15. He says, the time has come and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And what is that good news? Is that the kingdom of God is available right now. God's rule and dominion and reign are here. Where God isn't far off hiding in the clouds somewhere. God has broken through to our life right now. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and through our filling of the Holy Spirit. And as Christians, we have been born again into that kingdom where we have direct and immediate access to the kingdom of God. Not just in the far off by and by when we die and go to heaven someday, but right now, right here. Not a transactional relationship, but a transforming relationship. So with that in mind, what do I do with the book of James? It has such a long list of things to do and to not to do. Loads of, of check the box types of items. How do I live as a good Christian? Oh, I can do that. I can do that. Do I pursue those little nuggets of wisdom directly? Does James want me to try really, really hard to do all those things? He does seem really focused on works, especially at the end of his passage. And when we talked in the beginning about how I really like math, <laughs> I really like that clear black and white checklist, follow the rules. I like having a list of do's and don'ts so that I can see the path that's laid out before me and I can judge my success and I can judge failures as well. James finishes this chapter in James 2.26. He says, be assured then that faith without works is as dead as a body without a spirit. That's pretty lifeless. It's pretty dead. So if faith without works is dead, and Dan pointed out last week that that's the theme of the whole book of James, right? It hinges on this verse right here at the end of chapter two. So I have a little disconnect with that because isn't my faith enough? Why do I have to do certain things too? How do I reconcile James's assertion that faith without works is dead with the idea that we find elsewhere in scripture that God's grace is enough? So the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, we see it in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one should boast. 
So Paul says, it's just grace and faith that our salvation doesn't come through works. So who do we believe? Who has it right? Is James, who's telling us faith without works is dead? Or Paul saying we're saved by faith alone and not as a result of works? And my answer is yes, <laughs> that they're both right. And here's why. So I've started to think of the book of James, including the words that, that we read this morning, as not being a list of things to accomplish, but what if we saw them as a measuring stick for the fruit of Christ in our lives? Our purpose as Christians is to become like Christ, to do what he did, to love how he loved, to be transformed into his image. And so maybe the Christian life is less like taking a math class where it's important to know and produce the right answers, to have that check the box approach where I know certain things, I can follow certain rules, and I can be assured I'm going to heaven when I die. That heavenly mansion that Jesus is going to prepare for me, that's what I'm aiming for, maybe some gold stars in my crown. Maybe the Christian life is more like that English literature class where we're supposed to dive deeply into that text and wrestle with it and discover what and who those words point to. How do we love God and neighbor? And how does that change who we are on the inside? So maybe it's more of an exploration and not a simple right or wrong answer. So I have an imperfect example, because most examples are imperfect. But let's say that you believe that lava is hot. <laughs> let's just you know, really push the envelope here. Let's pretend that you believe lava is hot. So you have faith in the hotness of lava, right? Is your faith enough? Would your faith in the hotness of lava save you if a volcano erupted and lava came swirling this direction? No. Your faith in the hotness of lava would naturally change the actions that you take in the face of lava. Hopefully, we'd all get up and run the opposite direction, right? You would make different life choices because of that deeply held belief that you have. And so similarly, our intellectual belief, our faith in the message of God in the kingdom of God, in the love of Jesus Christ, cannot just stay in our heads. And it cannot just stay in our imaginations. And as that truth seeps deeply into who we are, and as the Holy Spirit works in our lives, we will naturally be changed in how we respond to the world around us. We will make different life choices. So our eyes can be open to a new way of being and a way to follow Jesus and to disciple under Jesus and to become like Jesus. I don't think that it's possible to truly deeply believe the good news that Jesus came to preach of the direct immediate access to the kingdom of God without it changing us and molding us into different people who naturally do different things to become changed, to see as Jesus saw, to love as Jesus loved, to notice as Jesus noticed.
So yes, both James and Paul have it right. God's grace is the only thing that saves us. We can never of our own power be enough. And also, that saving grace will empower us and enable us to embody the life of Christ and to become different people and to live differently. So James is not calling us to find the right list of rules or laws and live by those. James is calling us to a deeply changed life in which the love of God, the love for God, for ourselves and for neighbor naturally spring out of us. So how do we do that? How do we become those kind of people who do those kind of things that we read about in James chapter two today? How do we notice injustice? How do we become bold enough to speak up for those who are marginalized or those who are ignored? How do we generously give food and clothing and shelter to those who are in need, regardless of their social status, their race, their religion, their smell? So I've been thinking about this, and I've come up with another imperfect example. And that is that the process of becoming like Christ is like baking muffins. Hang with me there. So everyone likes muffins, right? I can't think of anybody who doesn't like muffins. Um, Muffins are delightful. And Christ-like people should be delightful and heartwarming and comforting. Show of hands if you've ever baked muffins. Yes, please. Awesome. I've even got the kids involved. This is amazing. So you start with batter, right? You get a list of ingredients. You stir them together. Pretty easy. You don't have to wait for anything to rise. You just dump them all in, stir them in, blop your batter in the muffin pan. You stick it in the oven, set the timer at some point. Oh, your house smells so good. You take your muffins out. They have to cool a little bit. And then you can just slather them with butter. And just jam the whole thing in your mouth, or is that just me? It's probably just me. But I was thinking, at what point does a muffin become a muffin? It starts as batter, and it ends as a muffin. And at some point, there's a transformation from batter to muffin. So is it right before your timer goes off? Is it after it's been sitting on your counter cooling for a little bit? It's a mystery. It's a muffin mystery, and I'm not going to dive into that today. Maybe somebody knows the answer, but I don't. But just like muffins, we start as people who are just a gloppy mess, and we are desperately in need of a savior. We are lost and directionless. And when we meet Jesus and start following him on the way, we don't just automatically become full-blown, transformed Christians. We don't become fully Christ-like with like the snap of a button or the flip of a switch. Bing! Here I am. I am perfect and able to follow Christ in all his ways. It is a slow, laborious, and sometimes painful process. And we talked about those trials and tribulations last week. So maybe the muffin analogy isn't the best. I'd I really don't want to be slathered with butter. That doesn't sound good. Muffins really aren't great when they're squishy and doughy in the middle. Terry likes them that way. I don't. That's just weird. We take a really long time 
on our transformation. We don't just get popped into the oven of Christ-likeness and 30 minutes later, ding, we're a delightful, fully done muffin. This is a really long transformation and maybe we never fully get done. Maybe we're destined to be underdone muffins the rest of our entire life. But instead of waiting for that one moment when I'm fully Christ-like, maybe I just get to appreciate that right now I am a little bit more Christ-like than I was yesterday. And then tomorrow I'm going to be a little bit more Christ-like than I was today. And maybe we'll never be done baking. I asked my grandma over Christmas dinner last year. She's, what, like 92? I said, Grandma, when do I get to feel like a grown-up? And she said, I don't know. I never feel like a grown-up sometimes. (laughs) Well, that's awesome. Thanks, Grandma. So I have an illustration that kind of helps me wrap my mind around what does that process of transformation look like? And so we have a triangle, a three-sided triangle, because that's, duh, triangles have three sides. They're all equal sides. Let's go with that. And this is from Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, which if you've never read it, made my brain hurt. It's, it's, it's going to take me multiple times to read this book to really grasp it. But he drew a picture, and I love pictures. So it's an illustration of what the spiritual growth looks like. So at the top of the triangle, the very tippy top, we have the action of the Holy Spirit. So we can't go anywhere. We can't do anything becoming formed in the image of Christ without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that moves in us to bring us to faith in the first place and then continues to work in us to form us into the image of Christ. So at the bottom left corner, we have the events of ordinary life because that's exactly where we are. We can't be anywhere else except for in the ordinary events of our daily life, washing the dishes, going to work, dealing with challenging individuals. Our life is made up of those tasks and trials and tribulations that somehow are essential to our spiritual growth and development. So then on the bottom right side of our triangle, we have our spiritual disciplines. So these, we have, are invited into spiritual practices that can help form us into the kind of people who can be influenced by the actions of the Holy Spirit and who can respond appropriately to the ordinary events of our life. So I have a quote from Dallas Willard, and you'll see what I mean about this being, you just got to noodle on this, his stuff for a little bit. He says that a discipline, a spiritual discipline, is an activity in our power that we do to enable us to do what we cannot do by direct effort. I'm going to read that again. So a discipline is an activity in our power that we do to enable us to do what we cannot do by direct effort. So in my muffin analogy, a muffin can't just sit on the counter and become a muffin of its own power. It gets to submit to the oven to become a muffin. My imperfect analogy. We can't make ourselves fall asleep, but we can create an environment that makes sleep more likely. We can stop playing with our phone and turn off the light and darken the room and lay down, shut our eyes, count sheep, whatever that is for you. So similarly, a spiritual discipline is something that creates that environment where that spiritual transformation is more likely. It makes awareness of the Holy Spirit and an attention to the events of our ordinary lives much more readily accessible to us. So we can practice paying attention to the Holy Spirit and practice paying attention 
to what is happening in the right here and the right now. We can practice paying attention to God, which helps to form our Christian identity and our character and nourishes our soul and helps us walk in the way of Jesus. So a spiritual discipline might be taking a Sabbath, prayer, memorizing, reading, or meditating on scripture. It might be being in community, practicing radical hospitality, simplicity. If I'm less focused on the chaos of my calendar, then I have time to focus on God. But we can't do anything of what we've been reading in the book of James without the grace of God. As Paul said in Ephesians, we have been saved by grace through faith. It's not of our own doing. It is a gift of God. And yet, God has chosen to work through imperfect people. God has given us a part in bringing about his kingdom. And we have an opportunity to become changed people. Not to do works by just trying really, really hard, but by becoming the kind of people who naturally act differently. So the invitation that James is extending to us is that we're all made in the image of God. We are invited to honor that image in each other. We are invited to walk in a new way. We are to become the kind of people who look at people who are hungry and tired and sick and neglected and lonely and be Jesus for them, to see them as fellow image bearers of God and to treat them as such. Not because we want to make ourselves look good or because we want to feel good or we want someone to think that we're following all the right rules, but because the love of Jesus is inside of us and overflows out of us and we have no other way of existing in the world but to love people like that. In the Gospel according to John, we see these words in John 13, 34 to 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So as we disciple under Jesus, the love that we're able to show to God and neighbor will be a natural byproduct. We become changed people, changed from the inside out, and we get to demonstrate that, demonstrate that by how we live our lives. How do we love as God loves? Well, God loves us just how we are, not for what we do, not for what we accomplish, not for how we make God feel about God's self. He just loves us. Do I love that way? Do I love Terry because he makes me feel like a princess? And if he stopped making me feel like a princess, would I stop loving him? That's not how God is calling me to love. Do I love my children because they do things that make me proud? And if they fall short because they're people and they're in the process of becoming just like we are, because so they're going to, do I stop loving them? Do I love God because of what God does for me? Is my love of God, my love for God, simply because he exists and simply because God is? 
So I have an exercise for us to do. We're going to push the boundaries a little bit today. This is, we're, going to, we're going to do this as a spiritual discipline. We're going to embody what we know to be true in our brains. We're going to do something to move our belief from our heads into ourselves. So if you feel comfortable, please stand up. It's not going to hurt, I promise. So Nathan's going to put four different statements up here on the screen for us. And I'm going to invite you to find somebody to say each one of these statements to. So it could be someone you're sitting by, it could be a stranger, you decide. Um, once you say the statement that's on the screen, allow time for the person that you're speaking to to say it back to you. And then if there's time, maybe you can find someone else to exchange that statement with as well. And for each new one, try to find someone new to exchange statements with. Ready? Y'all are so brave. I love this. All right. The first one. You are created by God. So find someone and, and share with them. You are created by God. All right, I see a lot of staying in your spaces. We can, we can mingle, it's fine. The next one, you are a child of God. Our next one is you, you are beloved by God. And our fourth and final one, you are accepted by God. So I'm going to invite the band to come back. Y'all can stay standing if you want. The beauty of these statements, and Nathan, you can leave these up. The beauty of these statements is that you can say them to anybody without knowing a darn thing about them, and you can know that these are true. And when we know that these things are true about every single person that we come in contact with, how could we not look on them with love? And how could we not take meaningful action to show them the love of God? So this is a perfect time to respond to what God has been doing in your heart. Dan's going to lead us in a song of worship. But I want you to know that you are created by God. You are a child of God. You are beloved by God. And you are accepted by God. Father God, I, um, it's, just, it's just really heavy on my heart right now. Lord, that each one of us would do these things that we do here in church. We come, we get ourselves here, sing some songs. We try to get our hearts aligned. We try to intently listen to what you would have to say. Father, we do sometimes get some feel good. Sometimes we get some conviction, whatever it might be. 
but Father, the things that happen in this place, the things that happen in this place when this family, this body comes together, Lord, if it's not doing something different in us to make us or allow us to go out and, and, and be able to love on other people that need to be here, then, then something's not happening. Something's not right. And so, Father, whatever has to happen, there's people here that need healing. There's people that need uh, to be touched even just for, 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 for depression and things that are making it hard to go out there and feel like they can do anything else. And you have grace for that too. Lord, you want to heal. You want to do those things so that we can be stronger and we can do those things. And then, Father, there's some of us that just like we've been around a long time and we do the church thing and we love it and it's great. But, Father, don't let us walk past the hurting or people who have been broken with nothing there in our hearts or just a, just a quick, yeah, I hope, hope things work out for you kind of thing. We don't sing these songs, Lord, just to feel better about you. They sure do make us feel that way. Would you, uh, boy, I, I feel like just saying, would you begin revival as we leave these places t- to go and affect our world, even if it's just one person we live with or work with or come into contact with? Change our hearts, Lord, to beat the way yours does. Like Sarah said, as, we, as, we're, as we're changing on the inside and becoming more like Christ, would you give us a heart like Christ had for our community? Or we don't look at particular sins. We don't look at stuff that makes us uncomfortable. We simply see somebody who is valuable to you and needs you desperately. We can let you take care of all the other stuff with conviction or whatever it might be. Would you just, Lord, help us to love our community that way? I think some great things, Lord, I think you want to do some great things here if you just help us do that. We'll pray all these things because of you, Jesus, because of your blood and what you did on the cross for us. We'll pray all these things in your name.